25. The most difficult, most necessary step. Turning the deadbolt and stepping through the door. In my slow conversion, the deadbolt that barred me from faith was always true belief in the resurrection, since the entirety of Christianity depends upon it, as St. Paul himself wrote. Without it, the whole story falls apart, and none of the other miracles matter. The resurrection of a sinless human opens the door to the forgiveness of sins and a new life for us all. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus is simply an insane charlatan that deserves no respect, no worship. This situation of the resurrection puts everyone into a decision point about whether to believe or not, and this is exactly why Christianity is so challenging. The leap of faith all comes down to the resurrection. To me, the proper response, if you do not believe in the resurrection, is rejection of all of the Christian faith. Literally, none of it is worth the paper it is written on if that is a lie. Even the teachings and the parables, because to claim divinity without it being really true would be a mental disorder. There is no other response but rejection if the resurrection did not happen, as the teachings of Jesus become moot if the miracle is false. There are lots of teachers in history that we can use that didn't claim something so outlandish. Especially today, with all the meditation and self-help books, we can find maxims and aphorisms to live by that do not require belief in miracles. On the other hand, if the resurrection happened, then you have no choice but to fully embrace Jesus as the Savior. This is why belief is hard, because if the resurrection is true, everything in it is true. All of the Gospels, all of it. And yes, that includes the hard parts. The resurrection truly is an either-or selection that we have to make. And if the default is choosing doubt or ignoring the claim, the much more difficult choice is to examine and review whether or not to believe in the resurrection. This dilemma presents a fork in the road on how to live your life, one that must be chosen. And this is not like being, to, being asked to believe if Athena really sprung from Zeus's head or to believe in the tree worship of ancient tribes in the book The Golden Bough. This decision puts the mir miraculous directly in front of us, and we must choose, as even choosing not to make a choice is itself a choice. And making no choice at all is choosing to deny the miracle, to deny the resurrection. That is the default position, but still it is a choice. I love mythology and trees, really. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yes, I love Lord of the Rings and giant oak trees and Ovid's metamorphosis and cottonwoods. In fact, I like science too and stand in awe of the everyday miracles of surgery and treatments that save lives that we had no idea about 100 years ago. And yet, scientists have discovered these things and literally are making wonderful things happen every day. But this dilemma about Jesus and the resurrection cannot be avoided because the reality is that our heart knows there is something more than this world beyond the confines of science and what is known and even knowable, that God is so far beyond our ability and understanding that something supernatural beyond nature can exist and yet somehow touch our world. 
The author of the universe cannot be understood, but you can see the wonder in the world everywhere in art and nature and in your own heart. We are characters in the author's book who cannot know what is outside of our story here, but we can feel the presence of something higher than just tall tales or the periodic table of elements. Jesus declared multiple times that he is the way to eternal life. That is a hard pill to swallow for modern rationalists who seek data and a cause for all things. The saying, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And in related to that, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I guess this is why Jesus says we have to enter through the narrow gate. Because it is hard to find the narrow gate, and perhaps it's even harder to decide to walk through that gate. I think it is mainly hard for me to squeeze my mind and ego through the gate. I've gone on in a prior episode about how the scenario at the tomb on Easter Sunday sowed doubt in me. The story just sounded too fantastic to be true, and lacking answers I let my doubt win rather than pursue the subject, since I didn't get the impression that asking questions was encouraged. And I've come to realize that faith, in particular, since I'm Catholic, the Catholic Church can handle any question thrown at it, especially one surrounding the divinity of Jesus. That doesn't mean I will always like the answer that I get, but there is no question that cannot be asked, that cannot be answered. Today, I only wish I had sought a deeper understanding of faith sooner in life. I've come to realize that there is no stone left unturned in the writings of the church and in the catechism and in the gospels as they have spent, this group has spent 2,000 years turning over stones and discussing these things in great, great detail. Specifically for the resurrection, there are many points that tip the scales from doubt to faith but not without probable cause and good reason. As Frank Morrison noted in his book, Who Moved the Stone, about his own conversion to the truth of the resurrection, he said, I have wrestled with that problem and found it tougher than ever I could have conceived possible. It's easy to say that you will believe nothing that will not fit into the mold of a rationalist conception of the universe. But suppose the facts won't fit into that mold. The utmost that an honest man can do is to undertake to examine the facts patiently and impartially and to see where they lead him. So the main reasons of how I came to believe in the resurrection are the following ones that I'm going to give, but each of these could be a lengthy post or episode of their own. First, the fearful and defeated apostles turn into this fearless group of unbreakable believers. I don't believe anyone would die for a lie, not this way. People may be willing to die for a lie that gives them social standing or power or fame or honor, as soldiers often have through history or people of some follow of uh, some demigods or leaders, but the followers of Jesus got none of that. They did not get power or fame or honor. They received the opposite and they became outcasts and rejects of society. 
Another reason, if the Romans or the people of Jerusalem could have produced the body of Jesus, they would have done so. And no one ever did this. This never happens. There's no body produced. No one even seems to be looking for it. Another reason, no one disputes that the tomb was empty. And this is a massive fact even for those that accuse the, the apostles of stealing the body. Clearly, the tomb was empty. And this is a problem for the Romans, for the Jews, and the apostles. Even Mary Magdalene first announces that the body has been taken, she says. Had his body been moved to a different tomb or location, rumor and hearsay in the city would have created cause for a search. And even today, pilgrimage to the correct, quote, tomb in Jerusalem would be occurring. This didn't happen, and it doesn't happen today. The powers at the time try to convince people that the apostles moved the body, but these men were all cowering in fear, scattered across the city, or returned home. Someone in the city of Jerusalem would have known where the second burial location was at, but no one appears to even be searching for a kidnapped body. There's nothing about a search. No one's looking for it, because apparently it's not there. It's gone. If the apostles had moved the body, or knew of someone moving the body, one of them would have cracked under the numerous beatings and torture and martyrdom that came to them all over the next 30 years. They never waver in their story. Not once. None of them. Human beings cannot keep a secret, so if they had a secret of such magnitude, it would have come out. There's the old saying that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. It almost seems impossible that none of them would have given up such a major secret under duress when those persecutions were happening to them. Here's another reason. If it was all made up, the writers of the Gospels and Acts and James would not have mentioned a seven-week gap between the death of Jesus and the beginning of the preaching the good news. The gap of seven weeks only causes doubt and gives detractors and doubters an entry point to suggest that the apostles spent these seven weeks crafting a story, building up their tale. This is one of the elements of the timeline that actually creates doubt. And it's again one of those things you would never put into a story if you were making it up. It, it's something that must have happened, otherwise you wouldn't put it in the story. If the early believers wanted to sell a contrived fable, they would have claimed their preaching began the moment Jesus had risen, but they don't write that. They all agree that they were confused and fearful until seven weeks after the death and resurrection. Once they do begin to tell the story of the resurrection, after Pentecost, the apostles managed to win over people in the same city where the trial, death, and burial happened. And this is a major point that I consider when I was thinking about the resurrection. They convinced people who were there in the city when it happened. The apostles didn't sneak off elsewhere far away and start telling people who might be duped. They stood in the city where it happened, where everyone knew it happened, and had even witnessed Jesus' ministry and his last days and the trial. The original band of evangelists were uneducated people with no social standing who suddenly began to convince people that the resurrection occurred, even amid 
Jerusalem, the intellectual center of the time. They're winning people over there. They're making sense. They can't be stopped. Something is going on. Over 500 people saw the risen Jesus. This is the next point. It's not just a handful of people. The hallucination theory might work for one or two people, but not 11, and certainly not for 500 people. Another point, women are recorded as the first witnesses at the tomb. And this is as, as important as anything because culturally, women were not even allowed to be witnesses in court. So this would not help make the case in first century uh, Christianity. So it's clear that the women were the first to witness it, to be at the tomb, or the gospel writers would have left it out. They would not have wanted to mention this since it worked against their case, but they did mention it. And so why would they make it up? It's something that actually sows doubt in people of that era. Another point, over and over in the Gospels and Acts, details are included that allow for doubt or questions about the miracles. The authors are clearly not crafting a tale because elements of the stories do not make sense unless they were true. Here's a couple. If they were trying to build up the apostles, then why tell about Peter's denial of Jesus, his three times that he denied him? Another one. Why admit that Jesus wanted to escape his fate in the Garden of Gethsemane by passing this cup? Why have Jesus uttered the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? How many people have sat there and read that and wondered what does that mean? and not understand how that helps you believe. It actually makes it harder. Why not make the stone at the tomb crumble like magic? Why admit that the apostles fell asleep in the garden? Why characterize the apostles as bumbling rubes so frequently? These books read like no other literature ever written, and the writers of them were not literary types or trained storytellers. There's a saying, uh, I believe it's from C.S. Lewis, that people who think the Gospels are myth haven't read much myth, mythology. Um, I'm not sure of the exact quote, but it's something along those lines. So these writers, they aren't troubadours. They are fishermen and tax collectors and people with no social standing. The reason for all of these curiosities in the Gospels is that the truth needs no rehearsal. They're writing it down as it have as they know what happened. Here's another reason. Crucifixion was a brutal spectacle meant to shame criminals. The fact that the savior of the world would be shamefully executed in this way, no one would make up a story like this. It was demoralizing and devastating to the apostles until the resurrection and Pentecost turned them into lions. To have your savior of the world, your messiah, rushed through an urgent kangaroo court trial and brutally executed with two murderers does not fit with any other story ever told. And no, the myth of Horus is not the same, not even close, as some people try to, to make it parallel. I have a link um, if anyone's interested. But great effort among doubters is made to disable the story. But most amazing is that however many angles the attack takes to steer people away from the Gospels, it never works. The truth of these four books cannot be squashed, despite the Herculean efforts of writers and governments for the last two millennia.
The story taps into what is written in our hearts, and for those who come to believe the idea that we are both sinners and saved is a shocking idea. That we are corrupt and don't deserve saving, coupled with Jesus' coming to serve us and die for us as if we were the heroes of the story, could not be invented by these writers and agreed upon so readily unless they were writing the truth. There is no myth or God or of any other religion where the hero dies for the unworthy and then immediately turns around and forgives his killers. If anything, all other myths have the God turn around and wreak vengeance upon his tormentors. For anyone that reads these books without a cynical eye, with a historical context, and often it's, it's good to have a, a critical study guide, like maybe the Navarre Bible or the Word on Fire Bible or the Ignatius Study Bible, the reader will begin to feel the power of these words, as there is no myth or history or genre that can compare to what is written in the Gospels. Another point. The Gospels agree that Jesus had said multiple times that he would rise on the third day. This clearly stood out in the Apostles' memory as, it, as it's recorded in multiple places. This third day repetition is hammered into them by Jesus as a reminder, just as it is he's also reminding them about the Holy Spirit coming and those things. But there's plenty of times he's repeating these things. Here's one that um, I have to talk about. The swoon theory <clears throat> is a theory where Jesus did not die on the cross, but was taken down and put in a tomb, and he just woke up later on. So this, this swoon theory is probably the most ridiculous thing I've heard. Uh, as the witnesses of the risen Christ do not see a staggering and bloody and nearly dead man come into the upper room. <laughs> the apostles don't see this person who should be on a hospital gurney. They see a fully restored man, but with the wounds to prove it is him. A swooned man would have been tortured. Someone who was, if he had been swooned, but he'd also been tortured and whipped and crucified and lanced in the side, he wouldn't be restored uh, a couple days after the event. He wouldn't be able to walk or move with the with the nails between uh, into his feet. Uh, those types of injuries would have a man in a hospital bed laying down, infected all kinds of problems. He wouldn't be eating fish and walking to Emmaus, you know, and running into people. And moreover, the swoon theory didn't come about until modern times. And so this isn't even a theory that existed until like a hundred years ago um, when some creative academics got together and invented it. Here's one to, there's an argument that there's not much written about Jesus from non-Christian writers. There's more written about Jesus than any other historical figure of his time. Clearly he existed, and clearly the Romans crucified him. There's an article um, from Matt Nelson on Word on Fire about this, that more is written about Jesus than any other historical figure. And the fact that someone will point out that non, there's no non-Christian texts or very little makes no sense because, of course, they were Christian texts that were writing about Jesus someone who was not a Christian would probably not write about him as they would have thought he was crazy because they did not believe in the resurrection, so they would have just written it off as some madman. So that argument really makes no sense to me. Ancient people, here's another one, um, 
Ancient people, I've come to realize, were probably less gullible than people are today. And if you don't believe me, just see the internet and Facebook for evidence. So the idea that the ancients were morons is just modern prejudice, and I've heard this called chronological snobbery. The idea of someone rising bodily and passing through walls and ascending to heaven would have been every bit as incredulous to an ancient audience as us today with all our gains in modern science. This one, the message could not be stopped. In a short time, this idea, the gospel, the good news, the resurrection, it spread like wildfire. Starting with Rome and ever since, empires have attempted to stop this message and stifle this words about the resurrection, and they all fail. They fail over and over. Every, every empire that has tried it cannot do it. There's something greater at work, something beyond this world, something stunning and world-changing. There have been plenty of false messiahs whose messages go nowhere. But this one cannot be stopped, and all of the witnesses agree, and they died for it. Many of them died for it. This quote from Frank Morrison sums up the challenge that is put before us, and this is a little longer quote from this book called Who Moved the Stone? If the sole evidence for this really extraordinary phenomenon lay in a single passage in the early chapters of Acts of the Apostles, it would be possible to regard it as a rather exuberant record of a contemporary historian whose close connection with the movement had biased him and colored his views. But this is precisely what no one can claim. There is a far earlier and more authoritative testimony in the letters of Paul, of Peter, and of James the Just, and in the admittedly historic network of Christian churches stretching from Jerusalem through Asia Minor to the catacombs of Rome. Only from an intensely heated center of burning zeal could this vast field of lava have been thrown out from a tiny country like Palestine to the limits of the Roman world. The phenomenon that here confronts us is one of the biggest dislodgments of events in the world's history, and it can be accounted for only by an initial impact of colossal drive and power. Yet, the original material from which we have to derive this dynamic force consists of a habitual doubter like Thomas, a rather weak fisherman like Peter, a gentle dreamer like John, a practical tax gatherer like Matthew, a few seafaring men like Andrew and Nathaniel, the inevitable women, and at most two or three others. I do not want to minimize the character of the historic nucleus from which Christianity sprang, but seriously, does this rather heterogeneous body of simple folk reeling under the shock of the crucifixion, the utter degradation and death of their leader, does this look like the driving force we, requ we require? Frankly, it does not. And the more we think of it disintegrating under the crisis, the less can we imagine it re-welding into that molten focus that achieved those results. Yet the clear evidence of history is that it did. Something came into the lives of these very simple and ordinary people that transformed them. 
the sequence of coincidences is too strong. When we remember the swinging around of the disciples from panic, fear, to absolute certitude, the singular matter of the seven weeks gap, the extraordinarily rapid adhesion of converts in Jerusalem, the strange absence of administrative vigor on the part of the authorities and the steady growth of the church, both in authority and power, until the whole situation blew up into the frenzied attempts at suppression under Saul, we realize the historic crux of the problem that we are in the presence of something far more tangible than the psychological repercussion of a fisherman's dream. That's a long quote. Um, <clears throat> in conclusion, if the flip happens in your brain from disbelief to belief, where resurrection goes from a lowercase r to a capitalized r, then you are in trouble because there's no turning back. You will be stuck with the result of being content and happy and having a purpose in your life like you've never experienced before. You will no longer be sinking. You will have a hand reach out for you when you look away and start to fall. The fear of being adrift will disappear when you say, God, help me. And Jesus will reach out and grab your hand before it goes under. He will save you first, and then with a gentle rebuke, he will say to you, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? <laughs>